Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforumca. Stick around until the end and you'll get to participate in our new segment. Each week we'll test your knowledge with a suitably obscure yet meaningful piece of Canadian political trivia. Be the first answer on Twitter or Instagram and you'll own bragging rights for the week among our wonky audience. But first, here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Like many of you, we at PPF have just wrapped up our reading of the throne speech and been looking at it for a little while. It highlighted something that lots of people, industry and government alike, have been talking about, and that's a green recovery. We're not going to give you any kind of play-by-play punditry. We'll leave that for others. Instead, I'm delighted to highlight one of the possibilities that a green recovery might hold today. Driven by the need to decarbonize and to mitigate climate change, the world's energy system is undergoing a fairly radical transformation. In recent years, hydrogen has gained unprecedented momentum as part of achieving a clean, secure, and affordable energy future. Hydrogen is light, storable, energy dense, and produces no direct emissions of pollutants or greenhouse gases. But for hydrogen to make a significant contribution to clean energy transition and a net zero future, it needs to be adopted by people who actually build things and put out things and distribute energy in this country. So it needs to have a return on investment. It needs to work. And I think there's probably work left to be done on it. So in that spirit, The Public Policy Forum organizes an energy future forum, and we had a hydrogen workshop recently convening some thinkers in this area to discuss hydrogen in light of Canada's 2030 Paris target commitments and net zero by 2050. And today I'm joined by two of the participants in that workshop. It was an outstanding discussion, and I want to bring them to a broader audience. With me is Marty Reed and Grant Strem to help unpack the meaning of the hydrogen world before us. Marty Reed moved to Vancouver in 2015 from Silicon Valley to launch Evoc Innovations, which invests in promising companies working to supply low carbon or no carbon answers to our energy needs. Prior to Evoc, Marty was a partner with the Rhoda Group, a San Francisco-based early stage venture capital firm focused on clean technology. Evoc Innovations is a member of our Energy Future Forum. And also with us is Grant Strem, who is the chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. He started out in the oil and gas sector before eventually becoming convinced that a hydrogen economy is the eventual zenith of the world's energy continuum. His words, not mine, his Zen words on hydrogen. Proton is working on the development of quickly scalable zero emission solutions that leverage existing infrastructure. 
Welcome, Grant, and welcome, Marty. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ed. Great to be here. I guess I'll start with the speech from the throne, and then we'll broaden out. You know, it said the government will, I quote, support investments in renewable energy and next generation clean energy and technology solutions. It says Canada cannot reach net zero without the know-how of the energy sector and the innovative ideas of all Canadians. And then they cited Canadians in four provinces, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador. So in the context of Canada's energy future, hydrogen being part of this, what do you make of these words from the speech from the throne? Marty, let's start with you. Well, I mean, like most of us, I was pretty pretty anxious to, to hear and was left a bit you know, wanting for more details, uh, you know, there were some some nuggets and some teases of things to come. But I, I think we need to wait for the more substantive commentary and policy to come out uh, in the coming days and weeks. I think she even said sort of expected immediately. I'm not sure what that means. One one tidbit she did reference was a focus on uh, zero emission vehicles, which certainly hydrogen plays quite well in that potentially. But in general, I'm, I'm sort of left wanting for, for more and, uh, and hope that we get that soon. Well, wanting for more is the whole point of a throne speech. So that's good. They have succeeded with you. Grant, uh, what did you make of this? And maybe particularly the invocation of people um, needing the innovative ideas of people from British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador, the energy producing provinces. Sure. Yeah, I actually agree with that. I, I find that people who are dealing with something and need, well, for example, if you are producing enormous amounts of energy already and have a lot of infrastructure, you have teams in place, you have a lot of know-how about how to distribute this energy, it's, I think, easier to pivot uh, that infrastructure and that momentum in a, in a different direction than it is to absolutely start from ground zero, like geothermal in the middle of you know, some, I, I do like geothermal, don't get me wrong, but to, to try and do something very large scale, uh, there's a lot of uh, expertise already existing and to repurpose infrastructure and teams towards clean energy is, I think, uh, uh, a good idea. So I actually applaud that general message and I think that um, the general message is unsurprising. So uh, people have been, you know, ever since we saw a million people marching in Montreal, I felt like there's a certainty that this will impact politics. We will be going in this direction. And it was 2019 when the zero emissions vehicle mandates for the Minister of Environment were introduced. So we know that by 2025, 10% of vehicles sold in Canada will be zero emissions. We know that by 2030, there's an increasing amount. And we know that by 2040, it's illegal to sell uh, emitting vehicles. So this is uh, somewhat in line with what we already know. Okay, well, let's put this in a hydrogen context, if we can then, because all around the world, we're seeing countries rolling out hydrogen strategies. Canada's working on one too. A hydrogen strategy, I guess, you know, to start with, does build on the existing energy system, doesn't it, uh, Marty? Yeah, and I actually to go back to your previous question about sort of specifically naming some of the, the provinces, but, but seemingly intentionally leaving out Ontario and Quebec, both of whom are leaders in, in particular aspects of, of energy in, in the form of nuclear and or hydro, both of which could be very attractive pathways for hydrogen production, as an example. And so when you think about hydrogen 
uh, in a in a you know pan-Canadian context. The beauty of it is I, I see opportunities for for each province to to take advantage of of their resources that they have to find the solution to produce the hydrogen at the lowest cost with the the lowest carbon emission footprint. And so what that may look like in in Quebec, as an example, could be uh, electrolysis of water using abundant hydro. Here in British Columbia, perhaps that's advanced pyrolysis of natural gas with, with solid carbon as a byproduct that then can go into things like tire production. Or if you're in Alberta, you know, certainly there are a number of ways you can do that. Currently, we make hydrogen from steam methane reforming, and you could uh, apply carbon capture to that, for which Canada has a leadership role in carbon capture. And then you've got some emerging technologies that uh, I'll leave to Grant to speak to, but the idea of leaving the carbon in the ground and just extracting the hydrogen would, would potentially be an absolute game changer. If Canada's going to be a hydrogen leader... What does that mean? What are the opportunities and challenges? And what does that look like five years, 10 years, 15 years? You guys give me the time frame of when it looks like whatever it looks like. Grant? I like uh, the concept of two-tiered evaluations. One is, is it possible to make your hydrogen lower cost than diesel, gasoline, and jet fuel? There are many, many ways to do that. And electrolysis is usually the main theme coming from something like hydroelectricity, geothermal, wind, solar, nuclear, something else. Um, I, I think that we should be uh, heavily investing as a society in those directions because they will uh, both reduce the cost of our transportation fuel and clean up our healthcare costs and many other uh, knock-on problems that happen with uh, emissions. And then the second tier is, does this technology have the potential to get lower costs than natural gas? Because I, I see that as re a requirement to deeply decarbonize our entire economy. So you can use it for processing ores, uh, cement. The, there are many, many different things that you can do that you can't use hydrogen for uh, unless it can get cheaper than natural gas in the absence of, of significant subsidies. So those are the extra special technologies that I would like to see uh, supported and encouraged and developed as fast as possible within Canada. Okay, so those are interesting thresholds. And Marty is an investor and Marty analyzes, finances, you know, investments that make sense over a medium and long term. So do you have confidence that we're going to hit those kinds of thresholds, if you agree with those thresholds, that hydrogen can be less expensive than diesel, less expensive than natural gas? I want to step back as I think about it with, a, with an investor lens. You know, today, the, the vast majority of hydrogen is consumed by two industries, and that's, that's fertilizer production in the form of ammonia, and that's refining and upgrading of hydrocarbons. And you know, I think those are both ripe for, for innovation and would be targets of where I would be pointing uh, both investments and in technology and policy towards in the, in the short to medium term. And then longer term, as we think about how say transportation and fuel cell technology should continue to evolve, we'll then start to see economically viable alternatives to the, the diesel and, and gasoline powered engines that we have today. And I, I think we're all optimistic that we'll get there, but uh, in the short term, there's no question that, that pointing towards industrial uses of hydrogen would be where I would start. 
And then with policy, with continued innovation, I think we can see things like distributed hydrogen generation continue to improve. Again, transportation. And what, what does that look like? Just tell me distributed hydrogen. What, what does that look like? Yeah. So to, to today, the bulk of hydrogen is produced at you know, large facilities, and it's a hub-and-spoke model, meaning it's produced locally and, and then either consumed or it's tanked and shipped to, to various sites for consumption. I could see a number of emerging technologies that would enable for economically viable on-site hydrogen production, which would then eliminate some of the challenges with storing and shipping hydrogen, which, which is a challenge. And so you could imagine what are today gas stations becoming sort of all-purpose fueling stations in the future where they could have, you know, electric vehicle charging, hydrogen charging, and, you know, some form of, of green uh, diesel uh, or low-carbon diesel or gasoline in the future. So when I say distributed, that's, that's what I'm referring to. Just for those people who've been around for a while and remember that 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was a lot of talk about hydrogen and a breakthrough in hydrogen. And, you know, it feels kind of like a little bit of a second wave. Ballard Power out in uh, British Columbia was one of the hottest stocks in Canada. There was going to be a, a hydrogen highway constructed, I think, from Arnold Schwarzenegger's mansion to the legislature in Victoria, and then probably go up to Whistler uh, for the Olympics, I think, was the plan. These things did not happen. So what went wrong and what's different today? Grant? Well, I think there's been a few different breakthroughs that all contributed. One of them was obviously the global backdrop of the recognition of environmental catastrophe and health problems. So that's kind of forefront. Uh, as the population grows, these problems just get more and more bad and harder to ignore. Different scandals and you know, challenges with serious emissions and toxicity. Um, then uh, the carbon fiber overapt pressure vessel was a serious breakthrough. So 20 years ago, everybody was looking at these very heavy, high pressure tanks like scuba tanks uh, for hydrogen in vehicles. They were expensive and heavy. And now we can go to much higher pressures in a lightweight and safer uh, way. And all the different uh, developments that have continued in the background have now come to a mass production phase, including relatively modest uh, platinum requirements within fuel cells. So I see that as uh, all the ingredients are there for something that's much, much better. And, and I think, you know, examples like Tesla uh, have showed, yes, you can do something different at, and it's, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be a liquid fueled vehicle to be an awesome car. I don't know if you watched battery day yesterday, but I was inspired by the specs on that plaid model S I'm more of a cyber truck guy. But it does make me uh, think that there is more opportunity for appreciation of new things. Like, I'm actually considering the scoping of a giant pickup truck that carries a few hundred kilograms of hydrogen. And when you park it in some, some parking lot, and if it has a big fuel cell, you can actually charge up electric cars. People can park next to you and run a little hose over and, and start, you know, pay through blockchain or however that works out. Uh, a little meter on on the electricity they draw off of your fuel cell while you're parked or the hydrogen that they pull off of it into their little Toyota Mirai or whatever, Nikola Badger. So I think there's a whole bunch of different concepts for at-home fuel cells, mobile fuel cells, different uh, ways to skin the cat for transportation 
that a lot of people haven't even considered. And But to me, that's kind of the fun stuff to do uh, later. I'm still a big fan of focus on base load power. If you can make hydrogen cheaper than natural gas, you can make a lot of clean energy uh, as base load power, which will charge all those electric cars through the grid, wherever there's no grid limitations. Okay, Marty, some of your investments are in Alberta. And you uh, spoke a few minutes ago, and I actually want to—I want to actually go across the country in, in in a moment. But for the moment, let's uh, let's stick with the concept of hydrocarbon. So, for those of us who are not that scientifically oriented, you know, natural gas, oil are made up of hydrogen and carbon, and thus hydrocarbon. So, we're talking about taking the hydrogen and making a fuel source from hydrogen. What happens to the carbon? Taking me back to high school uh, chemistry here. This is good. Uh, uh, I thought I was taking you back to a PhD, but uh, if it's well, high school, that's, that's good Good on you. That's okay. Yeah, so hydrocarbons and, and methane in particular, natural gas, yeah, you've got, you've got carbon and hydrogen. And, and what we're really talking about now is using that hydrogen for energy and, and what happens with the carbon. And, and today, you know, that, that carbon is released as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, and what we want to make sure is going forward that that doesn't happen. And so the various uh, technologies that we're, we're talking about here, you know, obviously with electrolysis, you're, you're splitting water. So that's not coming from hydrocarbons, but with the natural gas, uh, there's, there's two generally accepted approaches today. One of which is you, you produce hydrogen just like you do today, but then you post combustion carbon capture as it's called. So you're going to capture that carbon as it's coming out of the, uh, flue gas, capture that, and then generally sequester it. And we know how to sequester carbon dioxide. We've been doing it for, for decades in North America. You know, the other pathway is, is one I mentioned is using various forms of pyrolysis. Uh, and so you, you separate that in the absence of oxygen. And what you end up with then is solid carbon. And it, it looks, frankly, a bit like charcoal. It can be called, you know, charcoal carbon black. It, it has a number of names. But the, the key there is there are markets for that. And so you can sell it today and again, into the production of tires is one example. We use uh, carbon black for a whole host of applications. That's very interesting. So essentially you can bury the carbon, you can sequester it, you can capture it, carbon capture. And I think, and maybe we'll touch on this, you know, I think you've, you've recommended, and I know our Energy Future Forum has recommended uh, that Canada create uh, incentives to do that. But also, there's a potential to take the carbon and turn it into products that have not been combusted, so they have not released CO2 into the atmosphere. So there's a whole product side of this where we could turn this into an economic benefit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. No question. Um, and again, there are some, some very large established markets, Carbon Black being one of them. It's a multi-billion dollar global market. Um, and there are a number of folks also working on let's say higher value uses of those carbons for things like you know, graphenes, uh, carbon fibers and the like. And, and some of that could come from production of hydrogen and, and it would be an obvious or a potential byproduct, I guess, of that hydrogen production. So it sounds a little bit like, a, you know, the proverbial win-win. You get, a, you know, clean hydrogen. You get to actually build some kind of economy off of the carbon, a clean use as well. Why is it Therefore, there seems so much suspicion around hydrogen that comes from fossil fuels. What's that all about? I, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Um, I, I think 
society has sort of villainized the hydrocarbon oil and gas sector and, and sort of put it in the, this is bad and we have to go over here and this is good. And this over here is, you know, windmills and, and solar panels. And, you know, and I just don't think that's a, a particularly realistic future. Uh, and, and there's, if we focus on the objective of how do we best supply energy to the world and the world needs energy, and how do we do that at the lowest cost and with the least impact on the environment? Uh, I think hydrocarbons and specifically hydrogen derived from from natural gas absolutely has a has a future. Grant, actually, let, let me take that a step further because I wonder when we get to more of a hydrogen economy, will it have the intensity of energy? You know, we, we need a future that's both clean but that provides energy security and the energy needs of Canadians. And will it provide, you know, in a sense, more energy than, than windmills, than solar panels? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, most things you evaluate have some sort of a footprint. And so looking at what that is and, and what that entails and how it might scale up. Well, I, I, Michael Moore's film about biomass was interesting. You know, you see all these forests just getting ripped apart and, they're doing that worldwide and calling it biofuel. And, uh, you know, that has an impact and a footprint. So does, you know, big fields full of solar panels and, and windmills. And, and, you know, there are, there's always, even my process has some sort of a footprint. So trying to assess uh, what is the least likely to cause extinctions and environmental challenges unintended consequences, those types of things is, is important to consider as you evaluate the various options. And I kind of look at this as, you know, if we're all smokers addicted to nicotine, we're trying to justify why we're still burning oil and gas. You know, I, I like petrochemicals, I like asphalt, I like tires, I like uh, the products, but to simply burn this stuff, I think is already arguably uneconomic. It's just we have so much momentum and the transition can't happen overnight. So uh, what do we target to change towards? What is the patch? So to use that uh, addiction metaphor, what is the patch that gets us through to the next side? And, and I think it's things that have energy density. So things that can leverage existing disturbances or infrastructure. So brownfield, and that can be anything from installing solar panels on an old oil field site that's grid connected, or it might involve doing electrolysis at an old oil field site where you can feed hydrogen into natural gas pipelines based on a, a wind turbine, or it might involve many other uh, similar types of concepts. But uh, in general, the, the least environmental impact for the patch towards whatever the future is, and I hope the future is abundant fusion power can eclipse what, what we're trying to achieve someday. But whatever that patch is should have the lowest environmental consequence overall and scalability. So if you can leverage existing infrastructure, generally that's the lowest environmental consequence and footprint. Yeah, I want to mention something. You, you sort of talk about density or best use and as it compares to say renewables like solar or wind. And, and I, I think there was a, a particularly watershed moment recently with, with announcements from Google and their CEO talking about their commitments going forward. And, and they, they articulated it quite well, which is they say, listen, we've, we've, we've been pushing towards a net zero emission profile for, for a long time, but what does that look like 
when you sort of start breaking it down and, and, and they have some pretty significant variances between a server farm in Texas versus one in Canada versus one in you know, Asia. And, and what it's really pointing to in, in the case of Google is they can't accomplish what they are hoping to accomplish with renewables alone. It, it doesn't allow for that 24 seven, 365 power that, that Google needs. And hydrogen potentially is one of the best solutions to that because hydrogen can either A, be generated at times when we have excess power and used uh, as energy storage to then be you know, converted back to energy when needed. Um, or it's sort of the grants point, if we can produce hydrogen cheap enough, it ends up becoming competitive uh, on a base load basis with, with natural gas plants today. And so hydrogen has multiple roles, say, that can play in this, uh, in this economy going forward. And the other that, I, that we haven't touched on that I think is important to, to mention and, and be curious to hear some thoughts on this is the potential as an export product for Canada. And, and I do think that merits a good bit of, of effort and support from both policy and from industry. Well, let's actually go down. I wanted to um, come to exports very shortly. So, you know, Canada runs a current account deficit with the rest of the world and has for 11 consecutive years that is going to get worsened by the COVID situation because oil isn't going to bring in as much and because interest costs will go outside the country as part of the financing of our debt. So last year, energy contributed $76 billion net to our current account of minus about 60 billion. So uh, that's a big number. 90% of that was oil and gas. So we're very dependent on oil and gas for our exports. How do we replace that? And, you know, I don't think, you know, perhaps wind and solar can do that, but I don't think so. I don't think you can get $76 billion. What kind of role does hydrogen play? And, and is Canada competitive in a global marketplace in hydrogen? So Marty, you started the export point. Why don't you start and then we'll go to Grant. Yeah, and I can be quick because I suspect you're going to predict my answer, which is absolutely, we can be competitive. And I think the, the, the ideal use case is converting Western Canada natural gas to hydrogen, again, using advanced technologies, pyrolysis, et cetera, where we have zero emissions, and then exporting that to Asia in particular. Likely, that would be exported in the form of ammonia, which makes shipping over ocean a lot easier. This has been sort of well-documented and understood. There's, there's an export terminal for ammonia that's uh, coming online in the Gulf Coast of the United States. But for a host of reasons, I think we are well-suited here in Western Canada to become a global leader in that. And the appetite for hydrogen as an energy source in Asia in markets like Japan and, and South Korea are already quite sizable and, and growing at, at double digits. There is demand in Canada, not only is the question, can it meet its demand, obviously got to develop to meet its demand, but it can run with the Saudis and the Gulf states and Russia and Australia and, and the Americans. We have the competitive juices to be able to do that? I, I don't see any jurisdiction in the world that has more abundant, low-cost natural gas than we have. I don't see any jurisdictions that have more sophisticated and greater talent than we have. 
And so it comes down to, do we have the will and the sort of bold vision to, to become leaders in that? And, and so, you know, today we are competing with Gulf Coast, the United States. There's a project announced in Saudi Arabia that will be using renewables and electrolysis to export ammonia. And I think we have a competitive advantage over both of those markets. Well, Grant, I guess you're part of the will. Uh, your company is part of the will. Do we have the will or the wherewithal to replace some of the exports we're inevitably going to lose um, on our current account, on our trade balance uh, with the world from oil? Uh, just one quick comment on that trade balance first. I, I see that California just announced that by 2035, it's going to be illegal to sell vehicles that burn oil, like gas, diesel, gasoline, and diesel. So and that's a huge market. Most of Canada's oil exports turn into diesel within the United States. That's where why we're making all this bitumen and selling it. So if it's illegal 15 years from now in California to buy vehicles that burn that stuff, and that's just one state of many. There are actually many annou announcements today, interestingly. I'm not sure why they all sort of uh, seem to do it at once. But, you know, definitely there's a increasing trend for drawing hard lines in the sand worldwide. And even in the States, our, our market for our oil is going to dwindle away. So 76 billion is a pretty big gap to fill. And if we don't come up with something creative, we're going to be a third world nation. And by third world, maybe I should say just impoverished, indebted, demographic challenges. There is a potentially very bleak future if we don't get our act together and do something large scale and meaningful to uh, replace that and grow in a new direction. And I personally believe that the easiest way to do that is hydrogen because as Marty pointed out, we have resources and infrastructure and people who uh, can help us pivot very quickly to take over that market share. And the world is globally competitive. Money moves in a heartbeat. Somebody just changes their mind and it flees out of Canada and it's somewhere else. It, it's just, you know, I've seen it time and time again. So whatever we can do to provide a very stable, attractive, you know, very predictable place to, for foreign people to park money in a way that helps us future-proof our entire tax base, uh, that's good for all of us. And hydrogen is a, is a vector because of our resource base especially our resource base that allows us to do that. So I think at the workshop, there was some discussion about Japan, particularly in Japan, having looked at Canada's hydrogen potential and quite favorably done a study on it. And, and I think there was a feeling that there's an export market, you know, ready to say yes. Is that right? Well, yeah, I'll jump in on this. Uh, Australia has already signed deals to ship liquid hydrogen to Japan. Will the ultimate carrier go to ammonia or liquid hydrogen on oceans? I think it'll be both. And, you know, I, I guess there's uh, arguments either way. But it's already happening. Like we sold our rights. Uh, we sold a license in Australia. And that's how we have afforded to drill the well recently and things like that. The Australians are going to be probably building oxygen plants and large scale build out of our technology faster than I can get it done in Canada. Okay, let's just pause there for a second because we all hear the story in Canada way too many times. Our technology, I think, you know, Marty has talked about this in the, previously in, the, in uh, the context of carbon capture. A lot of Canadian technology is being used in, uh, in other countries. Why is it that you're sitting there in British Columbia developing this industry 
and you've got a bigger, a quicker take up in Australia than Canada. How has that happened? Well, I guess I would point to family law as a factor. Uh, I've got four kids on, on Salt Spring Island and I'm not leaving them behind. So otherwise I'd be gone already. Really? And, and what is it about our business environment, our regulatory environment, our innovation environment that would have you gone? I have people who are very eager to snap up oil fields and start building oxygen plants. And they're, they have billions of dollars. They're a huge wind and solar company that I can't mention by name yet. But, uh, you know, they started out in coal and then moved into natural gas investments and then moved into wind investments and then to solar investments. And they're always trying to invest into what they see as the bleeding edge of what's likely to put them out of business. Uh, officially, it's for, you know, intermittency challenges they have with wind and solar. They have 10 gigawatts under operation or in construction. They are a very large company who understands energy. And they see this as something that they can initially uh, and will initially build out very quickly in Australia to meet uh, current need. And then they expect that the cost of it will drop far below what they're doing for the cost of electricity from wind and solar in Australia. So they are about to pour in, uh, you know, a very dramatic amount of money, uh, billions, billions into building out our process in Australia. Why is it I have so many skeptics in Canada? I find it like personally as a Calgary born, you know, Canadian, I'm not sure why it is, but people elsewhere see a good idea and want to do it. People in, in Canada, are much more hesitant to write checks until it's zero risk already. If there's already three existing large full-scale models, then maybe they think about it, uh, but not so for the rest of the world. Well, let's bring Marty in on this because uh, Marty referred before to whether we have the will. And Marty is a graduate of Silicon Valley and came to Canada uh, several years ago without any, I think, preconceptions necessarily. So are we... Are we willful enough? I mean, I will largely stand by what Grant said, which is historically Canada, in my view, has been first in line to be second. And, and I'll give a, a very recent example where we've lost the opportunity to be first, which is the emerging offshore wind market. Canada has enormous offshore wind resources. You know, we're now a decade behind uh, companies like Orsted that have come out of Northern Europe. Uh, and it'll be difficult for, for Canadians to, Canadian companies to catch up. Hydrogen, I think, remains a market that we could indeed have that leadership role in. But again, it goes back to, we can't just look at the throne speech as an example to give us the, the confidence to proceed. We need industry leaders to say, I, I see where this puck is going and, and we're gonna start making bets now. Um, because if not, European market is certainly moving much more aggressively on hydrogen already. They're largely focused on electrolysis. And I think we've got an enormous opportunity to bypass them both in terms of scale and cost by using uh, hydrocarbons as a feedstock to hydrogen, whether that be in situ, like what Grant is working on, or using pyrolysis, as I've been uh, referring to. Let's move toward the end here to an issue you raised earlier, which is that hydrogen can make sense in different ways in different regions of the country. So energy in Canada has been a point of division over recent years uh, for certain and uh, interregional division as well. 
Is there a national unity play in getting behind hydrogen? Grant, we'll start with you. Yeah, as I mentioned, that, that million-person march in Montreal, for me, was um, surprising. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a lot of mixed emo emotions about the whole thing, but, like, a million people marching in the streets of a Canadian city because they're pissed off about CO2 emissions. Uh, obviously, uh, politically, that has to have a, a very profound impact on how we proceed as a country, even if there's a $76 billion dollar uh, export market related to that. We we have a lot of impassioned people in Canada. And I think it, you know, if you look at the last election results, it was extremely stark uh, in the last federal election where the boundaries are drawn. Do we have uh, income and abundance and jobs and an economic prosperity and a future or a perception of that uh, in Western Canada? Yes. Is there I guess maybe because they're closer to Europe, Eastern Canada seems to, in general, have uh, more open openness towards these other things and a, and a very strong, strong passion against, in, in that case, climate change and, and air pollution and these types of uh, things. So It may also be because Quebec was blessed with a lot of water and Alberta was uh, <laughs> blessed with a lot of bitumen. Uh, True. <laughs> there may be a little geographic determinism in this as well. But nonetheless, you know, I guess the question is, and I'll turn it to you, Marty, you know, we hear about green hydrogen, which is hydrogen, I guess, that comes from water, from hydropower. We hear about blue hydrogen. Are we going to get into a color competition? I, I see no reason to. Let me step back a second. And, and if we think about what needs to happen to really enable a hydrogen economy to, to use that expression we need to be promoting you know continued advancements in hydrogen and transportation in distribution in storage all of that is applicable whether you however you are generating your hydrogen whether it's blue green pink turquoise you name it and so an enormous amount of the, the research and effort that will go into this space will be applicable across all of Canada, again, regardless of how you're producing it. And that's a value. And then when you start to think about benefits, again, downstream benefits, think about the fuel cell industry here in BC that ultimately will feed into the auto manufacturing and assembly uh, skill set that we have in Ontario that will you know, leverage our export markets on both coasts that uh, are well suited to exporting hydrogen. And so it's absolutely a pan-Canadian play. And I hope we don't get caught up on trying to pick what color is the right color, because it's, that's, that's not the right question. The right question is how do we produce hydrogen as cheaply with as low an emission profile as possible? And then everything else that supports that benefits all Canadians. All right. Benefiting all Canadians is what we want to be about. So I want to thank both of you for helping educate all Canadians. And uh, even if it did take you back to high school chemistry class, I took high school chemistry too. And I'm telling you, I know my periodic table, but I think you guys are a little past that. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, your insights, your visions, your hopes. Thank you for joining us on Policy Speaking. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ed. Greatly appreciate it.
All right, now I have the policy speaking question of the week for our listeners. Uh, we've asked JDM Stewart, history teacher extraordinaire and author of the 2018 book, Bing Prime Minister, to challenge and distract us each week with something fun in these days of everything being so monumental. So you can respond on our PPF Twitter or Instagram accounts, and sometimes we even hand out a pat on the back during our next episode for those who have really got the question and got it quickly. So last week we asked you, this country, that being Canada, has held three national votes on single issues in the form of plebiscites and referenda. These are not 1980 and 1995 Quebec referendum which were given the results in a single province, but national votes in this case. And we at Policy Speaking would like to know what the three issues were and what years the votes were held. So lots of you participated in our Twitter poll about the years of the votes and uh, congratulations, 52% of you got it right. So tight finish, 52-48. I gotta say, I knew two out of three. I didn't know all three. So the first one was 1898 and the topic was prohibition. I didn't know that we had a vote in 1898 on prohibition. In fact, now that I think of it, I'm not even sure how it turned out. Although I believe uh, in some provinces, you're now allowed in a bar as long as there's not more than 10 people there, but that might be an entirely new issue. The second was during the Second World War, the uh, famous conscription question, and of which Mackenzie King said in that very Canadian way, conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. And the final referendum, which some of you may well recall, was held in 1992 when Canadians went to the polls to vote down the Charlottetown Accord. Now for this week's question, former Prime Minister John Turner died last week and we extend our condolences to his family. Mr. Turner was 91 years old. It turns out he is actually one of four former Canadian Prime Ministers to live past the age of 90. Our question this week is, who were the other three? Who were the other three prime ministers, former prime ministers besides John Turner who lived into their 90s? And remember, please send your responses to us over the Public Policy Forum's Twitter or Instagram accounts. Now, at the end of the podcast, I also like to take a moment to salute some of the members of Public Policy Forum who've gone above and beyond the call of duty in their responses to the COVID-19 crisis. And today I want to point to uh, PPF member McMaster University, which has recently launched the Global Nexus for Pandemics and Biological Threats. This is an international network of McMaster researchers from many disciplines working along with other partners towards a single goal, preventing future pandemics and mitigating global health threats. McMaster researchers across diverse fields of expertise have rapidly mobilized to deliver on more than 100 COVID-19 related research projects to ensure Canada and the world are better able to manage the human and economic devastation of COVID-19 and whatever comes to, towards us in the future. So we are PPF proud of our member McMaster University and frankly the entire Canadian science and research communities who have been working diligently to understand and battle the scourge that has descended on us. And with that, it's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking. <laughs>